preaching of God's holy word. God of love and peace, you have commanded us to love one another, to live in your love and bear fruit. Let your love be shed deep in our hearts as your word is proclaimed among us. Open our eyes that we might see the evidence of your love around us. Open our ears that we might hear the song of love you sing to us. Open our hearts that in seeing your love and hearing your song, we might be changed into new and loving people. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. The Gospel of the Lord. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Keith. It was while they were waiting at a traffic light that 14-year-old Hannah Salwin looked out the window from the back seat, and on one side, a really sweet Mercedes coupe, shiny black, brand new, leather seats, perfect edition, pulled up next to her. And as she looked out the other window, she saw a homeless man crumpled up on a heating vent with a blanket pulled over his head. And she said to her mom and dad, who were in the front seat, Kevin and Joan, she said, Mom, Dad, if that man had less of a car, then maybe that man right there could have something to eat. And her mom turned around and said, Okay, Hannah, what do you want to do about it? And in an instant, she shot back, I think we should sell our house and give half of it to the poor. There's more to the story, but eventually, that's actually what the Salwins did. They sold their sprawling McMansion in the suburbs. They donated half of the proceeds of the sale to charity, and they bought a modest replacement home closer in to the city. The sacrifice was huge, and yet what it actually brought about in their family was a much more close family life because they had way more house than they needed. It was a house that underwrote a lifestyle in which they were all at four different corners of the house in four different rooms with their doors shut, watching four different televisions. And what happened is they actually had to come together and live in close proximity and actually learn to be a community within their family. It was something about building community. And they wrote a book, Kevin and his his daughter, called The Power of Half. And the aim of the book is not so much to get people to sell their houses, but to identify what it is in which God has given you a surplus. Maybe you've got more house than you need. Maybe you've got more car than you need. Maybe you've got more money than you really need. Maybe you've got more time than you need. Maybe you've got spiritual gifts that you're not using. But everyone has something that God has given in abundance, whether it's your time or your talent or your treasure. They say everyone does have their own half. You just have to find it. 
teenage woman tells her parents we should sell our house and give half away. And they actually did it. It's unthinkable. And yet the Bible talks a lot about money. You know, certainly the Jews in the Old Testament had their tithe. The early followers of Jesus, the Bible says, set aside a portion of their income every Sunday for the church. But the Bible also talks about something beyond the everyday giving of what God has given us. It talks about sacrificial giving as well. When you see a little girl convince her mom and dad to give away half, to get rid of their home, you have a picture of the beauty of sacrificial giving. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Next week, we're going to talk about what it looks like to actually build a community. The following week, we're going to talk about celebration, which is something that we never, ever talk about, though it's all over the Bible. But today, we're going to look at a passage in in the Old Testament. It's a historical passage in which King David, having had great conquests and great success and great wealth, he decides he wants to do a census of all of his fighting men to find out how big of an army he could actually pull together if he wanted to invade someone. And so he, he, he decides to do this, and his advisors push back, and they're concerned. They're concerned about his heart. Why do you want to do this, they ask. King David, you're the king, we'll honor you, but why would you want to do this? But he does it anyway. And so they go out. And they come back, they go through all the towns of Israel and Judah, both halves of the promised land, and and they count every able-bodied man who could wield a sword. And they come back nine months and 20 days later, and they they, they tell the king, he says, how many men do I have? They said, 1.3 million fighting men. And instantly, King David's heart was crushed because God had provided such a massive army. And in his distrust and self-reliance, he had felt compelled to count them. And God then sent the plague upon the people to discipline the king for his unbelief, for not trusting in the Lord to be the deliverer, to be the one who would raise up an army to come to the defense should they be attacked. And the plague came and it lasted days. 70,000 people died. We're going to pick up that story in 2 Samuel chapter 24. In your pew Bible, it's page 514. Uh, page 515, actually. It says 2 Samuel 24. We're going to begin in verse 17. This is God's Word. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up, build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. And so David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Araunah looked and saw the king and all his men coming toward him, he went out and he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Araunah asked, Why has the Lord, the king, come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. And Aruna said to David, 
Let my Lord the King take whatever pleases Him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O King, Arauna gives all this to the King. Arauna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arauna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. And David built an altar to the Lord there, and he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. What do we see here? What we see here in David is a model of sacrificial giving. First, he realizes what has befallen his people, and he offers to sacrifice his own life and his own family. Can you imagine saying, Lord, this is my responsibility. Take me and and take my children in order to protect all these people. He offers to sacrifice not only his own life, but the life of his own family. And then when God says, no, instead I want you to build an altar and make these sacrifices, he's offered the the, the land and the animals and the wood free of charge. And he refuses. He insists on paying an exorbitant amount for it because he says, I will not make an offering that cost me nothing. Sometimes when we make sacrificial commitments to God, it's because we're trying to say, God, I love you more than money. Uh, you know, it's like Jesus said, when, when you, you see a, a, a piece of, of property and, and you know there's buried treasure, you sell everything you have to get that treasure. And when, when Jesus is for you that treasure, when your Savior God is that treasure, that's, that's you loving God more than, than anything else and giving to Him because you love Him. Stu Weber talks about his, his youngest son of three boys. And the first two are kind of the high-powered kids. They're, you know, captain of this and all-conference that. Both of them, they're jocks. They're big kids, really strong, really popular. Everybody loves them. Type A personalities. And then he's got what he calls our caboose, which is his little guy, his third son, Ryan. And uh, as, as a dad, he would take his kids out camping a lot just to bond with them. And And in particular, Ryan, uh, he gave this very, very precious knife. It was a nice knife, really sharp, had all the bells and whistles. And and, and that was really important for Ryan because on the campground, you know, the guy with the knife gets the job done when you're trying to set up a tent, when you're trying to to, to fillet a fish, when you're you're actually trying to get something done. And, And for Ryan, that knife became his, it was his status in the tribe because his older brothers had to come ask him, hey, Ryan, can I borrow your knife for this? And, 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 and so it became, in a sense, part of his identity. It's, it's his status within that family unit. And, and one year, Stu's birthday came around. And uh, it was going to be in that afternoon, but earlier in the day, while he's working in his home office, uh, trying to get a, a sermon put together, of all things, uh, he, he feels this presence behind him. He didn't hear him come in, but he felt his presence. And he turned around, and Ryan is there. And Ryan has this big, ghastly-looking package with, you know, mismatched wrapping paper, way too much scotch tape. The corners are not even, like, like tight. 
Uh, it's got a stick-on bow, but it's not even centered well. It's off to one side, and it doesn't match. But he brings it over, and, and he wanted to give his dad a present because he loves his dad. And, uh, but he didn't want to do it at the party. He wanted to do it in private where it was just the two of them. And so he takes this package, and he you know, pulls off the, the bow, uh, it rips some of the paper, and he tries to delicately, you know, take the paper apart as if it's something precious, if he's going to reuse it, you know, that. Uh, and, uh, and as he opens it up, in the, this big wad of mismatched wrapping paper is the knife. He had chosen this. His son wanted to give this knife to his dad because he loved his father more than he loved that knife, even though that knife was his status in the tribe. It was everything to him, but his father was even more, and he could think of no better gift, nothing more precious to him, nothing more valuable to him. He was not going to make an offering for his father that cost him nothing. Sometimes that's why we make an offering. It's saying, God, I love you more than anything else. But sometimes, uh, and in David's case, that's really not what's going on here. Uh, David has his back to the wall. A plague has killed 70,000 of his people. David has sinned and sinned big from the heart, even against godly counsel that told him not to do it. And he stayed in that position for nine years and 20 days, unrepentant. And so what he's saying in making this offering and saying, I won't give to God something that costs me nothing. He's not saying, God, I love you more than money. He's saying, God... I need you more than money. I'm not going to make an offering that costs me nothing. We see sacrificial giving modeled throughout the Bible. Matthew 26, we see the, the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume. Jesus is saying, staying at a guy named Simon's house. He has leprosy. And this woman shows up. We don't know much about her, but she takes this million-dollar jar of alabaster, alabaster jar filled with perfume, and she pours it upon Jesus. And all the disciples get self-righteous and say, she could have sold that. She could have used the money to help the poor. And Jesus says, no, what she has done is beautiful. And what she has done will be told all over the earth in memory of her. Is it sacrificial giving because of the beauty of the one that she sees? In Luke 21, Jesus talks what we read, heard twice about the, the elderly widow who put her couple coins in the offering plate at the temple, and yet it was all she had to live off of, and Jesus found it beautiful. Think of 2 Corinthians 8 when, when Paul speaks of the Christians, the followers of Jesus in Macedonia, and he says that I testify according to their ability and even beyond their ability they gave of their own accord. In Acts chapter 2, you see the early Christians where, where there's this influx of people at Pentecost and there are all these new converts and, and they need to keep them in Jerusalem so that they can tell them about Jesus and so they can grow in their faith. And so people start selling their houses. They start selling land and they deposit it at the apostles' feet in order to take care of everybody who had needs. You see Zacchaeus in the Gospels, this little tiny guy, total crook. And Jesus looks at him. He's up in a tree. Jesus looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, I'm staying with you tonight. And Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed that the Son of God would have mercy. He so experiences that welcome of Jesus that he then not only repays everybody double what he's stolen from them, but he then takes everything else he has and gives half of it to the poor. I read about a story years ago of a little kid, 10-year-old kid, 
who walked up to a, 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 in a soda shop, climbed up on top of the stool and sat at the counter, and he asked the waitress uh, how much a Sunday cost. And she said, three bucks. And then she watched as the kid starts fumbling through his pockets, and he's pulling out like one really gnarled $1 bill that's torn. It's maybe three-quarters of a dollar bill. And then he starts getting out all these little coins, and he starts counting, and, and she's annoyed. She's rolling her eyes. And then he says, uh, how much is just a plain dish of ice cream? She says, that's two bucks. Rolls her eyes again. She's got other customers, other things to do. And after a little while, the kid says, I'll have a plain bowl of ice cream. And uh, she puts the ice cream down, and he plops down the $1 bill, three-quarters of a $1 bill, and four quarters, uh, and, uh, and then eats his ice cream. Ten minutes later, uh, she comes back, and the dish is empty. The boy's gone. And as she picks up the dish, she swallowed hard, because right on the other side of the dish were two more quarters and five dimes as a tip. The kid had had the $3 for the Sunday, but he was going to deliberately reduce his lifestyle as a 10-year-old so that he could have a dollar to tip the waitress. 50% tip, proportionally the biggest one she got that day. That's sacrificial giving. I read about a kindergarten teacher who, who had some kids, uh, you know, and they set up this thing where... Uh, the beginning of the school day, a new, new policy that year, the, uh, the school secretary would pop her head in the classrooms and find out if any of the kids had lunch money for her to hold throughout the rest of the day. You know, it was something that would keep the kids from losing their lunch money and then not being able to eat. And the first day she came in and says, anybody have lunch money for me? And the kids get silent. And they're all, some of them are staring at her, some of them are staring at the teacher, some of them are fumbling with their hands, and one little freckle-headed, red-headed boy is, just stares down at the floor like he's counting the floor tiles, and nobody has any money for her, and so she goes down the hall to the first grade class, and next day, second day of school year, she comes in and she says, anybody have lunch money for me? And again, it's dead silence. Nobody says a thing, and again, that little, you know, red-headed, freckled boy just stares down at the the, the, the floor deep in thought like he's disturbed. And then the third school day comes, and before the bell goes off, the little boy arrives early, and he walks sheepishly up to the teacher, and he looks around to make sure nobody is, is in the room, nobody's looking at him, and he, he hands over in his hand. He's got a bunch of wadded-up bills and coins, and he says, I brought some lunch money for that poor lady who never gets to have lunch. Without even telling his mom and dad, he had raided his piggy bank. That's sacrificial giving. I remember reading about a teenage boy. Uh, Jackie Nelson was his mom. She, uh, she said this. She said, I'm a single mom with three teenagers. My ex-husband doesn't help a bit, and I barely get by. I work long hours, and we really don't have much. But we wanted to do our part to help. Our church was building campaign build a building so we could get out of the school gym so that we could not have to set up the chairs every single week. And uh, they discussed it as a family, and they decided, you know, they couldn't really do anything financially beyond the tithe, and so they, they agreed that as a family, she and three teenage boys would sit down every single day for three years and pray that God would provide the, mon- the, the funds to, to, to actually build this church building. And, uh, and as they began doing that, as they began praying, she says this, In the middle of it, my oldest son said this. He said, Mom, we've got cable. We don't have to have cable. And so we decided to give up cable television for three years so that we could contribute 
That is what you don't expect. That is what the media tells you does not happen. That is a teenage male who's supposed to be self-absorbed and have no sense of responsibility, choosing to be the man in the house to actually lead the family forward in sacrificial giving. And it's awesome. And considering the offer of, you know, a free sacrifice, which is what David was offered. Hey, you can just have all this. You don't have to pay me for it. Uh, You have to to think, what are the things that David had to ponder? And one of the things he had to ponder was whether the sacrifice, the cost of his sacrifice, was worth the one for whom he was sacrificing. You know, you, you look at the repetition. He talks about, in verse 18, that this is for the altar of the Lord. In verse 21, it's the altar of the Lord. In verse 24, we're going to sacrifice to the Lord my God. In verse 25, he's going to do this as an altar to the Lord. He's wanting to sacrifice himself because the Lord is his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God before whom angels shield their faces before his holiness, the God who had stepped down to redeem them, circumcising their bodies and their hearts, making them clean and setting them apart, who had said, I am your God you are my people. That loyalty coming out of having been purchased by God and belonging to him and having access to him made him say, no, this is the Lord God. It's all caps in the English. This is Yahweh, the God who has revealed himself by his personal name. I'll tell you another story. Jamin Kwashi is a Christian leader from Jos, Nigeria, northern Nigeria, and he tells the following story of how the gospel came to his part of Nigeria. He says, missionaries came to my home area of Nigeria in 1907. One of them was a man named Reverend Fox. Reverend Fox was a professor at Cambridge, and when he arrived, his walk with Jesus was so deep that he led many, many people to Christ. He founded a church, and he moved 10 kilometers away to Ampere, my own hometown, and he founded a church there too. How a first-class person from Cambridge was communicating to illiterate people, I do not know, but God suddenly gave him favor, and people were turning to Jesus Christ. And so many people came to Christ that he wrote to his younger brother, who was a physician also in Cambridge, and asked his brother, the doctor, to come and help him because the medical practice was needed. And as his brother started his journey to Eng- from England, Reverend Fox became ill himself and died. So soon after his brother arrived, he also fell ill and he also died. The Church Mission Society, he explains, wrote to their father, who was also a pastor. And when they told him he had lost both of his sons, He and his wife wept bitterly, but then they did something else. They sold their home, they sold their land, they sold their property, they took the proceeds to the mission society and said, as much as we grieve the death of our sons, we will only be consoled if the purpose for which they died continues. And they gave it all to them and they walked away. He writes, recently I looked through the profile of those two missionaries who came to my hometown They both had first-class educations and degrees from the very best schools. They both died as young men. The older one was only 32 years old. They gave up everything to serve Jesus and to bring the gospel to my country. Were they crazy? No. They had heard what, what Jesus had said, and they believed it, and they were willing to stake their lives as well. No matter how long or short their life, 
it wasn't going to be wasted. They would invest it into eternity. For a college professor at Cambridge to give up his life so that people from a very different culture could hear about Jesus, that's sacrificial giving. For a physician to risk and ultimately give up his life to provide medical aid and support to poor people in another culture is sacrificial giving. For a mother and a father to sell everything they have and give it away so that people can hear about Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, so that that they can experience full forgiveness, so that they can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, so that they can be released from their shame, so that they can have the countenance and the joy of knowing that God is their dad and that he loves them. For that, that is sacrificial giving. I will not make an offering that costs me why is it difficult? It's difficult because we're like David. We trust in our own resources. When you do not have your back to the wall, when things are going okay, when people are asking you how you're doing and you're saying, fine, it's really, really hard to trust God in those times. It's really not easy to trust God until you've blown it bad, your back's to the wall, you've lost everything, or you're going to lose everything, and you have no choice but to look outside of yourself to someone bigger and stronger and more compassionate than you. I read a story about a guy named Craig. Craig C., uh, total alcoholic, more than a dozen years. He lost everything he had. He lost his wife. He lost his son. He lost his home, and he lost his job due to what he would describe as his selfishness and his addiction. And things did begin to change after he became a Christian, but he still had old habits. And and his only job he could get was at a grocery store that was very well stocked in the alcohol department. And so it was sort of like being, you know, on a diet when you work at a fudge store. And so he was constantly going back and forth, constantly falling back into it. It didn't really feel like his life was going everywhere. And so after a few years of this, he finally concluded that God had called him to quit his job without having another job lined up just so he could maintain his sobriety and his sanity. And so he quit his job, and he walked away. And he had trouble getting a new job. And he was behind in his rent, and he was having trouble finding money for food, and his car had no gas in it. And, and, and finally, he got a job interview at a, a factory, a, a sheet metal company, up the street from his church. And uh, after the interview, he didn't think it went too well, but he, he said, God, if you give me this job... My very first paycheck's going to be yours. And now as a pastor, I hear that, and I think, that sounds like somebody trying to make a a bargain with God. And God doesn't do bargains. But there was actually something very, very different going on inside his heart. This was not him bartering with God. Uh, It was something going on in his heart. He he clearly remembers the day that he actually got that first paycheck. He actually got the job. and, And he says, what I did is I took it, and I walked down the street several blocks to my church, I tapped on the office window. They let me in. I flipped it over. I I endorsed it on the back and gave it to the secretary. And she looked at me and she thought, is this legal? Are we allowed to do this? And he had all these bills to pay. He didn't know where he was going to get his his next meal. And yet he wanted to give that up. Uh, He says at that moment, it's the first really honest thing I ever did in my life. Uh, He says, I was having to trust God absolutely with my life. And now, 25 years later, he's sober and he's an elder in his church. You know, he sacrificed his job because it was getting in the way of his sobriety. He sacrificed that most important first paycheck. It was crazy, 
but in his heart he believed his only hope lay outside himself in Jesus. Without God, he says, I'm going to die alone and a drunk. And in my heart, I know I needed to know that God came first. So how is it possible to live like that? To trust God like that? Friends, we have a better Davidic king than David. We have a king who did not make an offering that cost him nothing. You look at the kings of Judah. God had promised David that there would always be a descendant of David on the throne. And, and some of them were good kings, and some of them were bad kings, and some of them were terrible kings, but there was always a Davidic monarch. And then when the, they went into captivity in Babylon and came back, they no longer had a monarch. They no longer had a, a Davidic king. And so they looked and they longed and and the prophets spoke to them of one who would come like a son of man, one who would be a true son of David, a king of David, one who would be descended from David and who would rule, one who would be like the ancient of days and whose rule would be through eternity. Friends, that true king of David came and his name is Jesus. He is the Messiah. He came and stooped down into our world of unbelief and sorrow, and poverty, and despair, and alienation, and shame. And he did that for you so that he could call you to himself. The true king, Jesus, came to claim you as his own, to adopt you as a child of God, to take you from your place of isolation and hopelessness, and to make you into an heir and an heir of a king. Lee Strobel tells a story from shortly after the Korean War. A Korean woman had had an affair with an American GI, and and she'd gotten pregnant. And, of course, he went back to the United States, and she never, ever saw him again. And so she gave birth to a little girl, and the little girl looked different from all the other Korean children. This little girl had light-colored hair. She had curls. And in that culture, children of mixed race were ostracized by their community. In fact, many women would actually take the lives of their own children because they didn't want them to face the shame and the rejection that they would face. This woman didn't do that. She tried to raise her little girl as best she could. For seven years, she tried to do that until the rejection that she faced was too great. And so she did something that probably few of us in this room could imagine ever doing. She abandoned her little girl to the streets. Little girl was ruthlessly taunted by people. They called her ugly names like alien devil. Didn't take long for this little girl to draw conclusions about herself, that she was unlovable, she was wrong, she was disgusting, she was dirty, she was corrupt, she was alien, she was a devil. Two years on the streets and then she was moved into an orphanage. And one day word came that a couple from America had come to Korea and they were going to adopt a little boy, a baby boy. All the children in the orphanage got excited because at least one little lucky boy was going to have hope. And so he was, one boy was going to have a family. And so this little girl, she and the other girls spent the entire day cleaning up the little boy, wash, the little boys, washing their hair, washing their faces, giving them baths, cleaning their clothes, so that one of them might be adopted by this rich American couple. The next day came, and you can imagine... All the scrawny, malnourished children looking up at this towering American couple, the woman 
sheer stockings and high heels, a pencil skirt and permed hair, the glamour of a movie star to these kids, and the tall, strong man in the suit with the shoes that shone and sparkled and speaking in this foreign language with such power and wealth to these poor kids in a war-ravaged orphanage. It was as if the gods had come down to the earth to make a selection. This is what the little girl recalled. She wrote it down. She said it was like Goliath had come back to life. I saw this huge man with his huge hands lift up each and every baby boy, and I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own son. And I saw tears running down his face, and I knew if they could, this American couple would have taken the whole lot of kids home with them. And he saw me out of the corner of his eye. I was nine years old, but I did not yet weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. My body was filled with worms. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was covered with scars. I was not a pretty sight. The man came over to me, and he began rattling away something in English, and I looked up at him. And then he took his huge hand, and he laid it on my face. I didn't know what he was saying. They, and they explained it to me in Korean. He was saying, I want this child. This child is for me. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. The true king, the true son of David, stepped down from his throne. He jumped down into a worm-ridden, lice-infested orphanage of this world, and he walked up to you with your worms and your boils and the scars that only you can see, alone and unwanted on this earth, and he chose you. He placed his hand on your face, and he said in a language that you could not understand, I want this one. This one is for me. I choose you. And then the true king, the son of David, made a sacrificial gift that enabled him to take you home. He paid for you with his life. In the ancient world, when a man adopted a son, when a man adopted a daughter, he was not only taking their person, but he was also taking all of that child's liabilities and all of that child's debts upon himself and choosing to become responsible for them himself. And when God chose you, he was doing so, transferring all of your debts and all of your liabilities to himself, and he would pay for you. He would pay for those debts. He would pay off your liabilities at the cost of the blood of Jesus. Who is the big giver? Friends, God's the big giver. He's the sacrificial giver. Jesus calls him the giving God. He is the one who... who who, who treasured you above all else. He took the most precious thing he could find. He took his son and he handed him over to gain the one thing he wanted most, which is you, that you might be brought into this new community of Jesus and be shaped by the sacrificial gift of God's son. Ellen Vaughn tells a story about her friend named Jerry. Some years ago, Jerry was in Russia. It was actually in the 1990s on a short visit with prison fellowship. And after they had kind of seen the prisons, he asked if he could get a tour of a local hospital. And they were taken to a 750-bed hospital in Moscow at the end of Leninsky's Prospect. And, and most of the beds were empty. But this was where children with cancer and blood diseases came to die. 
There was a cafeteria, but they had no food. They had nurses, but the nurses had no training. There was no one to do laundry. There were no disinfectants. They had very few medicines, and they had no lab work. What they had was hall after hall of cold-tiled walls with buzzing light fixtures, half of which did not work, and they had lots and lots of children. The children's families would have to come in to prepare food for them in the empty hospital kitchen because they had no food. This was the National Clinic for Children, where patients came from all over the Russian Federation. And after some time touring the facility, a staff person brought a young girl in an old wheelchair to Jerry. She had thin brown hair. She had dark circles under her eyes. Uh, She explained, the woman explained, this girl has four months to live. We have no medicines with which to help her. Jerry's heart sank, and he asked, what's her name? And he bent down on her level to look at her face. And the woman explained, her name is Eugenia. And a thud of compassion hit just beneath Jerry's ribs. He rocked on his heels. Eugenia was the name of his own daughter. What could he do? What would this Russian Eugenia's dad do for his daughter if he could? He asked the staff people what was going on. They said the drug protocol for Eugenia would run 18,000 U.S. dollars. And Jerry's not a rich man, but he turned to a buddy with him, a cattle rancher. He said, Ed, if we can't find someone to donate the money to help this little girl, then I'm willing to sell my car if you're willing to sell your truck. Deal? He looked at him and said, I don't know why I go on these trips with you. But okay. But selling a car and a truck would only take him so far. So Jerry returned to the U.S. and he got on his phone. Within two weeks, a prominent children's clinic in the U.S. had given him tens of thousands of dollars worth of drugs packed in cooler boxes with dry ice. And Jerry was on a plane back to Moscow. Jerry and his friends raised millions of dollars. And the clinic became world class. Furthermore, that clinic now teaches nurses and doctors. You travel all over the Russian Federation. And Eugenia's cancer went into remission. And Vaughn says that what happened when Jerry and the others got back to Moscow with that first plane load full of medicine, she says this, when, when he and his buddies walked into the hospital that night, Eugenia's mom was waiting for them. Eugenia's mother saw them down the dimly lit corridor, and her face was incredulous. She began to tremble. She burst into tears as she ran toward them, stumbling toward them, and proclaimed, You are Jesus in broken English. Are you not? You are Jesus. And in lots of ways, he was. He was the one who was going to be the hands and feet of Jesus, doing what Jesus does through his body, his church. And yet, in another way, he was Jesus, because Jesus himself was the one who left a place of great wealth and privilege and traveled a great distance to bring life-giving, healing medicine to people who otherwise would certainly perish. And he did it at the cost of his own life, and he did it because he wanted to have you in his family, the community of Jesus, a gospel community shaped by Christ's gift of self-sacrificial love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do honor and bless you. Our great hero, God, you who left the great high and holy place, you who, who, who were, had, 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 had wealth beyond imagination and who sacrificed it all so that you could have us. 
Oh, Lord, I pray that our community, that our church, we would be shaped by the gospel, shaped by the cross, shaped by your sacrifice, that it would mold us and shape us, shape what we dream of and shape how we love. We consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you could wash our feet in this meal so that we might wash the feet of others. For it's in your name that we pray to our King. Amen.